Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on this show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they and you could found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about science-specific science-related topics such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. There are two main episode types. One, the case study where one or a group of people talk about what they did, and you can kind of get a sense of how you could do it as well. To the second type, which is a group talking around a theme such as citric greening, which is coming up soon, or neurodegenerative disorders, which I'm also working on. Please sign up for our newsletter to get a other resources and outside podcast content from Guests of My Own Research, which comes out every Monday. Join us every Tuesday for new podcast releases and check out the website every Thursday for something new. You can find us at, at Lowell here on Twitter, Facebook, and my website, learningwithlowell.com. And don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review. It takes really only 10 seconds for you to do any of those things, which helps me and my guests create great content because it gives us feedback, lets other people know about it, and the more people will know about science and support it, the better everything is. Today we're joined with Dr. James Field, founder and CEO of Lab Genius, a company taking AI and protein engineering and melding it in an amazing way. We get into where James came from with synthetic biology, how he got his start with iGEM and how it kind of diverted him. And some other notable things about James is that he was the judge at iGEM in 2016. In 2017, he was awarded the BBSRC Innovator of the Year Award for his early career impact. And in 2018, this year, Forbes named him 30, one of the 30 under 30 in the science and healthcare that are kind of shaping up things. Also, Synthetic Biology Leadership Excellence Accelerator Program. Let's get into this. How do you handle it when you're told no? Like, I, I mean, you've you've had a very, like a lot of really cool things happening. So I, I imagine not everything's a yes. So how do you handle when someone says like, no, you can't do that? How does that, how do you work through that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think it kind of seg- segments out into into one of one of two things. If, if I think it's, if I think that they're saying no, because genuinely it's impossible to do or or I'm, I'm thinking about something or more likely if i'm thinking about something in the wrong way and they say hey here's an here's a here's a different world model or here's a different thing you should do and here's why i'm always very open to kind of thinking about that and if i think that's a better world model than mine then i'll then i'll, I'll adopt it hands down but if i think that you know ultimately the thing that the thing that i'm trying to achieve my objective is possible and and it is the right one then typically when somebody says no it makes me double down on my efforts to do it. And I think that's a function of wanting at some at some level wanting to to prove them wrong. It's a pretty a pretty shallow reason, but but it's a pretty powerful motivator. I do I do the same thing, so you're in good company. What made you gravitate protein and synthetic engineering over anything else? What was the thing that made you say, Oh, I love this stuff? Fundamentally, I think being really interested in the complexity of life. You know, when I look around, I, I look I look around in nature, and I just wow, that that's that's a beautiful solution to a really complex and interesting problem. Personally, I think that I'm not very intelligent, and so I really love the idea that there can be systems that can find solutions to really difficult problems that go far beyond human understanding. And so I, I was sucked into, I think, a love for and an interest in evolution as a function of that. And then protein engineering naturally fell out of it. it, it, it in the sense that because you can because you can synthesize and, and edit DNA very easily, it's it's a very it's a very accessible substrate through which you can you can start engineering new biofunctionality. I'd imagine most people have heard about CRISPR. Are there other really great ways to engineer 
proteins and that type of stuff? CRISPR as a gene editing technology really has uh, hit the news over the last few years. The way that you should really think about it as a, a really neat tool for moving DNA around. But if you're actually wanting to invent whole new sequences of DNA, it's, it's not even a tool that, tool that you require. So certainly a lot of the work that we do is really interested in how do you how do you invent new biofunctionality rather than sort of moving things from A to B, which is which is super useful. We're more interested in the question of how do you invent stuff that doesn't currently exist, which is, I think, where you got involved in the conference called iGEM, right, where they have like a bunch of protein engineers come together and they build stuff kind of like a science fair. I, iGEM was definitely a really pivotal moment in my educational career. So uh, I got to the end of my undergraduate degree in biology with microbiology at Imperial College. During the summer after I graduated, I participated. This was back in 2009, by the way. I participated uh, as a student in the iGEM competition. And exactly as you say, iGEM is this international competition where students from all around the world spend a summer creating a new biological system and then go and present it and compete in, in the US. And really, this was the first time that somebody actually said to me, hey, look, you don't need to think of biology as this descriptive discipline. You can now start building with biology. So you can start taking biological parts and, and inventing new things. And that was, a, that was a really cool and formative experience. And then you know, as a function of doing that, then I went on and did a master's and a PhD and then ultimately started building Lab Genius. If you wouldn't have been a part of that, do you, did you, were you on a different trajectory and like this turned you right instead of left? Or were you kind of always going kind of the way you were and it just kind of accelerated it? So a really common trajectory for for people who go to Imperial College, because it's located right next to the financial sector in the city, city of London, is that you do your degree at Imperial College, and then you go and get a job in banking. I had a job in banking lined up, and I was all set, leave science and go and do that. And then I did iGEM. I thought, you know what, this is far more interesting than than doing banking. I've never looked back. That's the transition from like understanding science principles and protein engineering to do banking, like how to how do those connect? Certainly within London, because there's such a big financial sector, they'll just take smart undergrads or, or recent graduates and sort of funnel them through their graduate training schemes. I, th I can't remember what percentage it is, but, but certainly doing my undergraduate imperial, a lot of my friends went out and did you know consulting and banking straight, straight out of their degree. But I think actually the, the interesting transition that's happened is that now, when I go around the Imperial College campus, often you know, giving a lecture to students or something like that, there's a real buzz around entrepreneurship there. And I think people now sort of see starting and building your own company as a, as very much an alternative path to, to getting a traditional corporate job. It's like a, it's a good time to build things. My personal philosophy is that you only fail at something if you give up. And, and I think when you're young, you have that luxury of you can really go hard at something. The only thing that you have to care about is being able to afford afford meal. So, so you, you know, you don't you don't have too much to worry about in 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 the sense that you know you, you can do jobs on the side and stuff like that. And when I was starting the company, I think I held at one point four different jobs in parallel. Just like this is while I was doing the PhD in in order to kind of get the company off the ground. And and you know that's fine. You can do that. Now I, I recently had daughter, and you know that really changes the equation in in the in in the sense that you have a lot of external responsibilities at that point, and and so your ability to uh, take those risks, I think, to some extent, is curtailed. I mean, certainly when we were building the company, myself and the team spent these two really grueling years on on minimum wage, and we were asking ourselves the question: Do you 
do you take salary this month or, or do you do this? Do you do the, this experiment with all the controls that you really should be doing? I, I think you're absolutely right in in saying that when you're younger, you do have the, the flexibility to take a bit more risk. It's like even in, in the short span that you've been in academia, you know, taking your degree to building a company like that, that change has been, you know, distinctive enough that you notice it. So that's, that's a, it's a good thing. Like when entrepreneurship is encouraged like that, what are the things, because it seems like, you know, four jobs at the same time, just to get your dream going. So you have some really crazy determination. So what are some of the things that you think allowed you to be successful or about you that you think really are integral to why you were able to you've done? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a number of things. I think, I think just as you said, it's that persistence. And I think that was something that that was something I definitely learned through the PhD. I spent the first, the first maybe couple of years of, of my PhD, I think almost in a state of mental depression, because for the first time, and actually I felt this, to be honest, in, in my, I did a research master's as well. And, and, and I felt it at the same time where you hit this kind of phase where you're doing bench research and you realize that uh, work in does not equal results out. And it's this really, really grueling experience. But the thing that it teaches you, if you really stick at it, is that just through sheer force of will, you can you can make something that's incredibly improbable. You can pull it into existence. So, so that's definitely the the thing that I learned through the through the PhD. I think the second piece is PhD definitely took longer than it should have done. I think that was because I was working on a pretty hard problem. And I think the thing I learned from that experience was that it's important to be patient about goals, but impatient when it comes to tasks. So so the way I kind of think about that is when I'm building Lab Genius, I'm not thinking about the company that I'm going to have in two or three or five or 10 years, but more, what is it that I want to build over the course of my life? And so I think having having that kind of patience in terms of what you want to build, but at the same time, being really impatient about the day-to-day tasks and, you know, try and move as quickly as you can at, at, at that, that level, that, that enables you to, to build something that's pretty interesting. And I think the third piece is this stuff is so hard that you have to be passionate about what you're building. And, and I try and only work on on projects that I am passionate about, because the, you know, the reality is that on a day to day basis, I think you have you, you can be doing that, that you can be doing pretty dull tasks on a day to day basis. Um, you know, when you're building a building a startup, it, it, maybe one day you're, you're actually like changing printer paper or, or sweeping the floor before an investor visit or something like that. But it's a bit of a roller coaster because, you know, the next day you could be in the House of Lords giving a talk to 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 dignitaries or meeting with incredible people. So, yeah, I think having having passionate for the passion for the thing that you're building is is really important. Segwaying into over to what you actually build. If I understand this right, it's kind of like you take AI and protein engineering and bring them together to develop unique applications from that. Is that a good synthesis of what you've built or would you describe it differently? Pretty much bang on. I think the way that I think about it is I think ultimately I'm interested in systems that can produce solutions that are more complex than humans can understand. And evolution is is the is the perfect example of that. Now, the thing that I find challenging or, or, or frustrating about evolution, this is Darwinian evolution. So that process of natural selection taking place over iterative iterative rounds is is that it's it's really really slow and you know humans have been grappling for several decades with the task of of how do you speed it up and i think one of the reasons that that evolution is so slow is that it always makes the same mistakes and it never learns from any of the things that it does i think the real opportunity that, that myself and my team saw is is there some way that you could make evolution intelligent and and our approach for doing that is really one where we try we try trillions and trillions of genetic designs physically in the real world. Mm-hmm. And then we try and and then we try and use machine learning to unpick why some of those 
designs work and why some of those designs don't so that when we make another round of the trillion designs it, they're, they're more intelligently designed mm-hmm. and so and so in that way you're harnessing computers in 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 and using computers for what they're good at and you're using biology for what it's good at and i think i think at that interface is where you can get a get a really exciting find some really exciting synergies and just the human component just kind of like directing it in a sense like you like building it, of course, but then focusing it on the tasks you want it to do. Like, how do how do how do you come into it? I spent my PhD doing the job of protein engineering. I tell you, that's not a fun job. So, <laughs> what's really cool is is saying the kind of fun- biofunctionality that you want. So, our dream is is to enable people to say, here is the molecular machine that I want to build, or that that I want to have built, and then Eva, which is our which is our AI driven evolution engine, kicks into action and searches through sequence space to find the best design for that set of functions. Well, when you first did it, because I imagine you probably like ran an experiment to make sure it works. What was the first thing you tried building? So the first the first problem that I, I, I really applied this technique to was during my PhD, I was I was trying to build a, a, a nanoscale device. So it's effectively a nano cage that you could load drugs on the inside of and target those cages to, to cancer cells. And that basically involves assembling a cancer targeting module, a cage module, and an assembly module. So you've got these three different discrete bits of protein that all have to function uh, in the way that they should. Now, the challenge is when you put those proteins together, they they, they sort of do this thing called, they, they basically, they come out of solution, they aggregate or, or they don't they don't assemble in the correct way. Correct way. And, and so the first time that I deployed this technique was in refining that design so that it could be produced in a highly soluble form and the solubility is important because if it's soluble then it can assemble correctly and and it basically works so the first time I, i kind of tried this is is i made a ton of different variants of this of this protein and then screen for ones for ones that, that that worked, and and even constraining the the different designs that that we tried in that process by looking at some of the areas that that evolution has has previously traversed before. So that's that's a really interesting thing. You can already just look in in nature. You can learn a hell of a lot about the the, the genetic design rules that underpin life just from looking at sequence databases. So so this is before you even start generating any empirical proprietary data sets yourself. Is there like a giant repository of this information and you guys kind of pull down from that? So as soon as humans, everyone's heard of the human genome project. So the big project where the human genome was sequenced, but, but, but well before that, scientists were sequencing genes from anything that they could get their hands on. Um, and so there are these these freely accessible repositories on the internet where you can download several hundred gigabytes worth of sequence data. You can start mining those for some for some really interesting really interesting rules that, that ultimately underpin the way in which um, biological systems operate. To kind of describe the process in a simple way, it's kind of like it's kind of like you set the parameters for a job application, for instance, for someone to fit a position. You'd be like, oh, these are the things that you want them to do, and then this program searches all the internet for these great people to and then like kind of gives you a sequence thousands of them different ones that could potentially work and then and you come in the end and you pick the ones that do work or does it does it also find the ones that are most applicable as well and kind of filter for that or is it like a puzzle matching tool if that makes sense as a very like simple way to describe it yeah the the way that the way that i think about this if you perfectly understand a problem then you can simulate it and you can solve that problem in in a computer now, the really interesting thing about biology is that the, on account of its complexity, we cannot 
build the models that actually represent life. Because, you know, if we could accurately model a cell or, or a human or an ecosystem, then you would just model everything in, in, in a computer and, and, and explore, explore that, that parameter space there. Because, because, we don't, because we don't fully understand these systems, we can't model it. But the beauty of biology is that you can conduct tests in the real world incredibly high throughput. It's fairly cheap in terms of resources to test a trillion genetic designs physically in the real world. And then the beauty is you can take that data and, and you, can, you can read back which designs work and which designs don't work using DNA sequencing, which basically ports the results back into the virtual world. And then you can use machine learning to learn what worked and what didn't work. So this approach is called empirical computation. And it's not just being used for protein engineering, but it's being deployed across many, many different verticals now. And really, empirical computing is, in, is this really incredibly powerful new method that can be used to solve problems that we can't model in silico, but for which we can generate high throughput empirical data. So it's, it's basically, it's, it's a new way to solve problems and it's incredibly powerful. Is there any industry or subset of biotech healthcare type industries that you feel would benefit a lot if they started using that that maybe are being slow to adopt it? Yeah, I mean I could I could see how this this technique can apply not just to to biotech but across many many different industries. Where where I see it being used really successfully today is is companies using it for drug repurposing, using it for, for engineering cells at the the microbial, let's say engineering novel microbes for chemical production. The challenge, the real challenge here is in order to build one of these empirical computation engines, it's pretty capital intensive because you need not only the expertise on the computing side, so the data scientists and the data engineers, but you also need automation engineers and molecular biologists and synthetic biologists and a lot of sort of automation equipment and machinery. Where you see these empirical computations engine, engines being built, it's primarily in tech startups. But the beauty of them is, is, is you know, once you've built your empirical computation engine, you can, you can head off to the pub and be having a drink <laughs> and it can be autonomously discovering new knowledge. And, and that's what I find really exciting. So I think in my hypothesis is that within, I would say, the next five or 10 years, we will see vast amounts of new knowledge being generated by these autonomous engines. And they will start to understand the world in ways in which humans can't even begin to comprehend. And then we'll get to this really interesting position where the creative ability of these, of these systems will vastly outstrip those of humans within those specific domains. I think Whilst there's a, there's a huge opportunity there, it will start to raise some really interesting questions around what is the role of, of, of a commercial entity and what is the role of an academic institution in the sense that these, these systems will be built within, at least initially, will be built within industry rather than academia. So what happens to that knowledge? How will it be distributed? And what is the role of, of academia in that new world? I remember that there on the periodic table, there was an element that they kind of inferred existed but that it like decayed out real too quickly. So scientists in the lab recreated it. And so, but if you didn't have like the scaffolding to kind of figure out all the, like the missing bits, they wouldn't have been able to do it, which makes you think, are there things like that, that maybe there's like an upper limit on what we're able to comprehend that you think that machines are going to be able to be that bridge, dumb it down, but like do some of the computational work. So it it is something that we can grasp. Like, is there it's a really yeah, it's a really interesting it's a really interesting question it's one that i spend a lot of time thinking about because certainly the system i think it comes down to how how do you want to understand the world around us so when when you're talking to to a child 
you often tell them a truth at a high level of abstraction that you know is you know is incorrect but you know that there is some the model that you present them with has some reliability in it and as you as you as that child grows older you give them a more nuanced understanding of the world so you give them a model that's a little bit more complex and and maybe closer to closer to reality now now what happens when the complexity of the model exceeds human understanding and so we were in this really interesting position where certainly in, in the world of protein engineering, we can have our, our system, Eva, read back some of the design rules that it, it discovers in a human readable format. But it's completely meaningless to us as humans. So it's, it's presenting. So, I, I, you know, I could be looking at this page of, of, of effectively a rule that Eva's discovered. And I can understand I can understand it because it's in a human readable format, but it's it's meaningless to me because it's too complex. And and so this 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 kind of creates this. It made me realize that humans, you and I, we're only going to be able to understand the world at, at a high level of abstraction. And it will be these machines, these intelligent systems that really understand the nuances of the world. And I, I and I think that that's something that kind of initially sort of sat quite uncomfortably with me because as a scientist you know you want to you want to really really understand something and having to 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 come to the conclusion that you're not you're you're not mentally equipped to do it or if your if your machine does give it to you in a human understandable format it's probably having to simplify it to to a to an extent that you're losing information i can see why you think about that a lot that is i'm gonna think about that a lot now you just like you spread the germ because <laughs> that's Oh, it's really interesting. It, it, for some reason, it made me think of how exactly what you were saying, how like when you're a kid, you understand things in a limited sense and you slowly build out. And it makes me kind of wonder, you know, because after 18, like around 26, like your brain for the most part, part doesn't have any more big epochs like that. Yeah. And it just it just makes you realize that, you know, we're still children. And, you know, a lot of our decision making processes are built on these highly simplistic systems. And and so and so it's both exciting in the sense that we can now build systems that can really understand the world in a more nuanced way. But it's also it raises some questions in, in the sense that does that mean that these systems could could in the longer term come up with drastically different conclusions to us based on a more nuanced understanding. I think the interesting part, bringing it back to a positive, our brain that we're using now is the same brain that we used as like hunter-gatherers. So, it, I mean, it's got, it's got, it's got us pretty far. <laughs> so it's, it's good that we can, I mean, it's just, it's quite a marvelous to think about like the, the brain that did the computing power to like run down a cheetah or something. Not that you'd want to do that, but it's just, it's a thing that put us on the moon. And so now we're, we're, like, even though we're unable to grasp that nuance, we're still able to build the things that grasp that nuance for us. So I think I think that's a really good point to make. So I think often when people get really nervous about these types of technologies, it's because they're extrapolating these systems, which are narrow AIs into into ge general AIs. And, and you're absolutely right when when you say, you know, these are systems that exquisitely understand problems, but probably a very, very narrow set of problems. And, and it's the human brain that has that broader understanding. Maybe we can't go as deep. But we have a lot more. We have a, a, a lot more versatility, and I guess I guess that's the, that's the stage now. But how how useful will versatility be in a world where an increasing number of of important tasks can be done by narrow AI? And ultimately, with the advent of general AI, then what what will the utility of the human brain be then? So I mean, I don't have answers to those those uh, those questions, but. But I think the fact that we're asking ourselves these questions seriously at this point in time is is, is pretty interesting because because you know we have the opportunity to shape what that future world looks like now. I, I think if there's like an AI uprising, like I don't think we'll be wiped out. 
I, just, I don't think they'll kill us all. If they, if, I mean, if they were to be like the evil type, I don't know, evil you could put on a machine, but I don't think they'll wipe us out. But then again, who knows? I guess that's kind of a fun thing. I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah, well, you're you're building one of them, so they got to be like, <laughs> we're going to take care of, of your family because you helped make us. When you first started Lab Genius, that idea of what you wanted it to be, is it what you created or did you have to pivot a number of times or or did it change a lot? Kind of like, like, did, like, yeah, did you have like a really good clear vision of what you were doing and like it kind of worked out like, oh, wow, I'm pretty smart at this. Or was it like, oh, I have to like wind like a river to get down to the basin? It's really interesting. So so I recently reviewed the first business plan that we wrote. And, and this was, I think it was back in 2012, 2013. It was pretty spot on in terms of what we're doing now. But the caveat to that is we took a really long winding road to get there. And, and, and that's really a function of the fact that over the last few years, it's taken me a long time to learn how, how to build a deep tech company properly. The first, the first mistake that I really made was when building the company, thinking that we had to generate revenue on day one and build it as, as, an, as an organic company. And I'd say if you're building a deep tech company, that's probably not the way to do it. So the very first thing that, that we tried to commercialize was, was our ability to create these very large synthetic DNA libraries, which, which was a, is, a, is a core component of, of Evo. And, and the challenge around that is we ended up having three quarters of our team who were PhD level trying to do marketing and sales and, and not pushing the development of the technology. So it, it, it really was a, a really valuable lesson that, that if, you are, if you're trying to build a deep tech company, then you've really got to focus on that end goal. And you've got to, you've got to be mindful of the fact that it will be resource intensive to build. And therefore, you have to be intelligent away around the way in which you assemble that company. And so so you're not going to be making revenue on day one, but there are value inflection points that you can that you can reach without necessarily generating revenue. So so really the pivoting around for us has have has really been an exercise in in which a bunch of academics or, or students at the time were really learning about what are the what are the commercial rules of building these types of company. Does it differ than other type of companies like tech, anything else in, in that regard like deep tech seems to be something that just takes more time to get to the point where you know it's like a baby like it takes time to gestate but so the way that i think about it is what's the size of the unit operation of your business so so for a lot of tech companies they can build something that's what i call a small unit operation so it's it's this cool whizzy thing and it does like some interesting function like let's say it checks the spelling something like grammarly okay it's pretty sophisticated but but ultimately it's like a spell checker and then really the scale for a company like that is how do you get this into everyone's everyone's hands? How do you scale it really rapidly? And and so with a with a SaaS business, a lot of the kind of thinking is around once you've built your thing, how do you make it really robust? How do you scale it? And and how do you ramp up your revenues like that? With a kind of hard science company, it's often a I kind of think of it as a big unit operation company. You have to assemble many, many more things. And often those things exist not only in the virtual in the virtual world so not only software but hardware as hardware problems as well so you've got you've got more of a the challenge isn't so much around scalability issue but it's more around getting your thing up and running and working that's an interesting way to look at it is there like a rule of thumb for like time like if you were if someone was thinking hey i wanted to build something in the deep tech area or biotech is there like you shouldn't expect to make money for like 2 years i think it's 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 really interesting i think it depends on how you see the what you see the purpose of the company to 
to be because if you look at a like a traditional biotech company doing drug development it's just a vehicle through which you can take potential drug molecule progress it through the different stages of development and ultimately sell the company to, to a pharma company and, and in that instance the company is a vehicle through which it doesn't really expect to make any you know it, it can make pretty much no revenue until the point of exit and it, and, it, and as i say it's just a vehicle to 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 progress to progress and build out an asset with a deep tech company if you're building if you're building a platform again it it, it depends on i think the, the question is always around where do your large scalable revenues come from because it's it's always possible to make revenues along the way but do those are those revenues are you looking to generate those revenues to defray r&d or to validate the thing that you're building or are they ultimately your your large scale large scalable revenues so i mean the way that the way that i kind of think about this is you when you if you're building a hard science company you have to think about value inflection points so a value inflection point is basically an external proof that you've created value and you have to think about value inflection points that don't necessarily have a a kind of recurring revenue format so an example could be a pharma company gives you a ton of cash in a pilot project with you and and in that instance you know the value that you've got is not that you're saying that that money you got from that pharma company is going to be your large recurring revenue stream, but it's proof that the pharma company value what you're doing and they put some skin in the game. So it's it's just a different way of thinking about it. Also, kind of like with the problem you had in the beginning is making sure that the things you're doing are actually are not not necessarily distractions, not going towards that larger mission or the vision you want to work for. PhD scientists working on sales maybe isn't the best use of their time compared to like building the the system you're in the platform you're trying to build yeah and i think that that's that's where it comes that's where like the the financing is really interesting because in you know the big inflection point for our company really was i think in q4 of last year when we took our first serious round of venture financing and and we took that money from really really qualified deep tech investors from us europe and asia the fundamental I would say shift that happened at that point is is we were start we we were at that point able to leverage all of this expertise in how you build a deep tech company that we weren't previously exposed to. So I, I would say L- London isn't the typical place that deep tech companies come out of. It's it's typically where you know fintech and tech companies are built. So so if you're building a hard science company, you really need to be able to like tap into that really deep knowledge base of how these companies are are built and how they grow and really that comes from a fairly small community of people what do you pitch them from what i understand like a, a normal pitch is basically what you want to do how you're the right team to solve it and how you're gonna solve it right does it differ in deep tech is it the format different in how you pitch these people like do they have different expectations of the science in my mind three classes of investor there is kind of the archetype uk investor and and really this is a function of the uk so the uk has a really strong financial sector Uh, as a result of that there are a lot of very wealthy bankers and private equity executives in london often those individuals who have made a lot of money end up investing in companies, and the way in which which those those individuals are trained is is often around evaluating a business in terms of what are its revenues, what are its growth potential, and 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 often so VC in the UK from that perspective often resembles scale down private equity, which is good for a certain subtype of business, but but deep tech doesn't typically fit into that. So they're not the most suitable class investor for helping to build a deep tech company. Not that they don't have value; their value is is probably best leveraged elsewhere. Uh, the second the second type is is the SaaS investor. So, you know, these are the these are the tech investors who know a hell of a lot about about building SaaS companies, but the question that they'll probably ask you repeatedly is 
how, how do we scale this in the cloud? And they're also not the right type of investor to talk to. And, and the third class of investor are the, are the deep tech investors. And these are the guys who understand the disruptive ability of tech, but they also understand how, 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 that, how tech can be, can be deployed in different, in different domains. So be it biotech, agri-tech, or, or, or anything else under the sun. And they understand how, how these sort of hard science companies are built and, and how they grow. And in my experience, in that third class of investors, the questions that they're principally interested in are, is this a huge market opportunity? So is it very obvious that if you solve this really difficult problem, you'll create a lot of value? And then the second piece is, are you the right founding team to address this problem? So in that instance, they're probably looking for, for very significant domain domain expertise and, and sort of evidence that that you're probably going to be able to leverage that domain expertise within a com- in a commercial setting. And then the truth is, if you want to build a, a deep tech company, there are a hell of a lot of other components that you need. And, and actually, the only way you're probably going to build it is, is by working very closely with those investors to, 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 to build and grow that company. Are there places to go to find the third type? I mean, because I imagine some people, when they are looking to pitch to people, they just kind of shotgun it. But it seems like a colossal waste of your time, especially if there's like the type of people that will really more closely resonate with what you care about. So like, do they like hang out in clubs? Like, where do, where do you find these people? Yeah. How, how do you find them? That's a great question. So I, I spent, a, you know, before we closed this round in Q4 of last year, I spent a lot of time speaking to the wrong type of investor because I didn't even realize this third type of investor actually existed. I remember this pivotal moment where I had a, my first meeting with one of these these guys who who really, really understood what it meant to build a deep tech company. And I described what we were doing. And, and you know, the reaction was, my God, this this you know, this is this could be massive, and and I can see the vision and what you want to build, and I could see exactly how how this gets built out. And you need to go and speak to the following five people. And I did. And I had five very similar conversations, and suddenly we were heavily oversubscribed for our round, and 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 we closed it. And and so my biggest learning from that experience is you need to work out how how you can tap into that that third group, those deep tech investors, as as rapidly as possible, and probably don't spend any of your time speaking to the other the other groups of people. And the best way to find them is find deep tech companies that you're you're really passionate about, that you think are really cool, and then just go on Crunchbase. And on Crunchbase, you can see the different investors who have invested in those companies. Then go on LinkedIn and see who who you know who knows those investors, and then whoever's the closest one, reach out to. And it's really difficult because typically these people will only take meetings through you know warm introductions from their network. So you have to have to get a warm introduction. But once you've if you're doing something that's cool and valuable, as soon as you've met your first deep tech investor, and, and if they're if they're helpful, which almost all of them in my experience are, then you have access to that network, and and you know that's how you that's how you raise money for 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 a deep tech company. And you don't and you know I've often heard it said, oh you know um, I'm in London or I'm in in I don't know some other country, and all of these people live out on the west coast, and you know I can't get to them, and and that's simply not true. It's it's a really international community. And, you know, we, 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 put, we put our syndicate together with investors from, as I say, the West Coast, from all parts of Europe, from Asia. And the truth is, at the time that we were raising, we, we really didn't have much money. And, you know, I personally couldn't, couldn't afford to get on a plane and go, go to the US. And, and so really, everything was just done by, you know, like Skype, just like we're having this, this conversation today. And, you know, I, I think in, this, in the world that we live in today, where everyone's connected, you can access and reach these incredible people all, all, you know, if you have to from your computer. Obviously, it's better to meet them in person. But, 
but but you know it is amazing what what a few telephone calls can achieve i think the thing that i've i've noticed in my limited experience is that like science science like you're saying does not know borders scientists will work to, with each other up <laughs> up until the government says you're not allowed to do it anymore and then they still want to do it like they just like they care about the knowledge more than are you in my neck of the woods you know and you know what i think i think that that's actually that's an attitude that's shared by a lot of these deep tech investors because you know they they when you speak to them of you know about what you're building that's what they care about they care about the vision of what you're building and and what you're trying to put together and and so it's about having that that you know they don't care whether you're located in 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 london or or, or wherever you are um they care about what are you trying to build and are you the right person to build it so when you got these investors you mentioned a, a couple of times how like they were very pivotal and kind of like bringing their knowledge base in so kind of like mentors so what did, what are some of the things that they mentored you and that you've like taken to heart and it's maybe accelerated or like pushed you to be better at what you're doing it's a whole bunch of things really a lot of these a lot of these investors and actually to be honest with you i i very much now call a lot of our investors good good friends you know these are the people that that you can pick up a, a phone to in the middle of the night and call and say hey I'm, I'm trying to think about this problem can you help me think about it and they'll spend some time and what they're incredibly good at is pattern matching so if you can if you can a mentor or an investor who's who's invested in a bunch of deep tech companies they'll say hey you know i, I I'm not saying that I know the right answer, but I've I've encountered this problem several times before, and here here are how the other entrepreneurs looked at it, and and, and here's what happened. So so I think that's been super helpful. Hiring that's that's a massive thing. So being able to tap into the investor network where they have heads of talent in house, and and being able to help you evaluate potential candidates. Thinking about how you make tough decisions and having having some sort of mentorship on that. So every Every month, I circulate this investment newsletter to my to my syndicate, and at the bottom is obviously like the thank yous for uh, for everyone who's helped me, and that list kind of grows longer and longer every month. You, you know, the the real thing is, I think that they actually very much become part of the team uh, as you build out these companies. That's a very positive thing that I think a lot of people, when they're like pitching these people, are maybe missing. It's like if you if you just look at them as like money bags, then I think you're missing out. And and it's it's, it's good to hear that like in at least one very limited you know case study that that seeing them as people as well is, is very beneficial because i know pe- at the end of the day everyone's a person right the person who said no to you is a person it's not like some when an institution says oh you can't do something at least in my experience like there's a way around it <laughs> so it's to like find the yes after you get a no from like one part of the institution there's like other ways which is like a weird way to say that like treat people like people and not like dollar signs that are waiting to go in your pocket that talks to the fact that you know that the the shape of venture capital has actually changed dramatically and it's a really good time to be an entrepreneur because in certainly in my experience there is as soon as you're you you kind of understand who you need to be talking to you you suddenly realize that if you've got a good idea and you've got a good team then capital is not a limiting factor it's been incredible for me to realize over the last 12 months simply how much capital is available for for, for hard science companies and and actually the thing that will make or, or break a, a, a hard science company is is not so much its ability to to access capital but it's accessing the right capital so as you say finding the right subset of 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 people that you want to work with and and i don't i don't think necessarily you know some people are better than others and i think i think that well obviously that's true but but i think an important uh, an important factor is is you know someone who's a great investor for me could be a terrible investor for somebody else and vice versa so finding that finding investors who you really gel with as people is is super important for for people who look at you as a source of inspiration like i thought it was really fun to to read about you and talking with you it's been great how would you advise that 
what would you advise they read or reflect on to make use of their uniqueness? Because there's there's things that you were uniquely skill setted at that you leveraged to build what you've built. So it's like, are there things that you read or things that you thought about that helped you recognize those inflection points? I think I think step one, find mentors, because because in my experience, we made my team and I made like so many mistakes along the way, just just through inexperience. And, and it and it's just the, the problem is there's no problem with making mistakes. It's just slow to, to learn from them. So find mentors who, who have done it before. And the second piece is is work on problems that are meaningful and, and about which you're passionate, because, you know, if, if you if your objective is just to make money, there are much easier ways to make money than 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 building a startup. So uh, spend time on, on, on something that you're you're super passionate about. And and I think everything else comes from there. Where where are you going in the next like one to three years? Like, is there something you're, you're building towards? You know, the thing that's happened in the last, I would say, in the last kind of six months is that the com- as we built out the company, it's it's taken on it's taken on a very different form. So suddenly, from going from a small number of very talented people, you've got you've got a large number of very talented people, and suddenly the rate at which the technology can be built dramatically accelerates. So Right now, based on the rate at which I see scientific innovation happening at Lab Genius HQ, I'm very bullish on what's going to come out of the next three, three to five years. What, what we're, where we're heading at the moment is full autonomy of our evolution platform. So, you know, if you're visiting London, come to Lab Genius HQ and you'll be able to see fully autonomous protein engineering platform. And, and I think that's, that's certainly where we're headed in, in, in sort of the near future. And and then using that platform to to solve some really interesting and meaningful problems for humanity. Part two of that question: Where can we follow along other than your website? I I think you mentioned a newsletter, but I think that's only for syndicate people. So how would we follow along your journey? So I would say follow us on social media. Fairly active on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. And if if you have a if if you have a, a real passion for for engineering biology and protein engineering and and the cool stuff that happens at that that interface then just get in touch we enjoy showing people where we work and and you know we 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 have team lunches on a wednesday so we often have people who are just interested come along and join us on a wednesday so always feel to reach out to myself or or one of the team and just come and come and say hi excellent i wish i lived in london i'd come say hi (laughs) Uh, (laughs) what do you think of biohackers this was a listener question like what do you think yeah People treating themselves for, with genetic engineering and kind of like having fun with all the new technologies that are coming out. We're at a really interesting time for humanity. And, and I, I think that's because people have stopped looking at, at their, their, themselves and the, and the human genome as this static thing that they're born with and they have for the rest of their lives. And, and suddenly they've realized, actually, the human genome, as, as it is when you're born, is in fact a blank canvas upon which you can start painting. and uh, the challenge that we're facing now is the brushes that we have aren't aren't very good to paint anything anything that looks any good if you're doing it at home, but but that's going to dramatically change. So I think this tension that we're experiencing now is 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 we're at the tail end of a Gaussian where the experimenters and the innovators are are going to be testing things on themselves. Those 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 early adopters will in, invari- invariably both innovate and and also endanger themselves. But I think in the longer term. There will be a radical shift in which, in the way in which the whole population sees themselves, and and so this is these are the first these are the first signs of that of that fundamental shift. I mean, it's a very interesting phenomena that people can 
like potentially edit themselves. As long as you don't get tumors, I guess it's it's all right if you're willing to live with it. I think I think the thing that that worries me is is that I don't have an issue with somebody editing their own genome in in in, in terms of their somatics in non-reproductive cells. But but it get, certainly raises some more serious ethical questions if people start ed- editing their germline. So so not only impacting on themselves, but but future future generations raises a question to what extent, I guess, should you be allowed to make that make a decision for for a personal people who, who haven't yet been been born? That's one of the questions that Dr. Duwadna keeps raising the lady who her and her team invented CRISPR. How do you decide to affect your germline when that's like forever? It's a, yeah. you know, there's no like right answer per se. It's like w- what we find to be right. And so it's a very interesting discussion that's going on because we're going to have the tools to do that, if not already. Right. And in theory, if those tools are good enough, there's a change you don't like, you just switch it back. All right. Well, I thank you for coming out today and being on my podcast. This is a great discussion. It, it's, it's, it's fun talking to people like you because like I can see where I'm ignorant at, you know, like I can see like, oh, like he's talking about this in like a really cool way. And it makes me want to dive deeper. You know, like I take ignorance as a challenge. So there's some things where it's like, oh, I, I, I look forward to learning more because like you opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about it. So I want to thank you for that. And I hope all my listeners liked it as well. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on your show. Thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. I am your host, Lowell Thompson. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell Was Here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.